This is Inside the Writer's Head with Jessica Strasser. The Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton Counties 2019 Writer-in-Residence. The Library Foundation's Writer-in-Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Here now is Jessica Strasser. Hi everyone. Welcome to Inside the Writer's Head. I'm Jessica Strasser, and I have a fantastically talented guest with me today. Meg Leader is a Cincinnati native who now lives in Brooklyn, New York, working as an executive editor at Penguin Books, where she oversees many of their lead nonfiction titles. She is also a talented author of both nonfiction and young adult fiction, And she always does hometown launches for her books here at Joseph Beth Booksellers, which are super fun. Um, Her debut YA novel out a couple years ago was called The Museum of Heartbreak. And her most recent novel, Letting Go of Gravity, released last summer and is set right here in Cincinnati. We'll talk in depth about that one in just a bit, and it will be coming out in a new paperback edition this coming July. She is also the co-author of several nonfiction books for teens and adults, including The Book of Me, The Happy Book, The You and Me Book, and Boys of a Feather. Meg, welcome to Inside the Writer's Head. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be catching up with you and um, and getting to talk to you about books and writing. I have been wanting to get inside your brilliant head for years. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I feel like we have to talk about your local connection first. I have to ask the requisite Cincinnati question. Where did you go to high school? I love that question. I meet people in New York who are from Cincinnati, and that is automatically the first question we ask each other. (laughs) I went to high school at Mount Notre Dame High School and uh, grew up in the Westchester area. Okay. And then you went to Xavier, correct? Yeah, I went to Xavier University for uh, undergrad and then moved to Ohio State for graduate school. Okay. So for those tuning in to listen, uh, Meg and I first met when she was working uh, here in Cincinnati at Writers Digest Books, and I was her intern. Um, I was a student at Ohio University, and I came here for the summer. And I always, Meg was kind of a superstar editor on the Writers Digest Books team at that time. And I always bring that up sort of sounding like someone's grandma, you know, oh, I knew Meg before she went to the big city uh, when I was a young grasshopper. Um, But I bring it up because Meg made a big impression on me as a mentor back then. And she still does now, even more so now, because it astounds me, Meg, to read your work, fiction and nonfiction, and to see the sorts of books you've edited and see how much of it is really an extension of you and your personality. And I really admire that I can look at your life's work and see you in it so clearly. And I think that's a goal for everyone, kind of a sign that we're doing what we're meant to do. Yeah, I feel really lucky along those lines. Um, you know, as a kid, I love to read. Books are kind of it for me. They're my go-to. And um, the fact that my life now, um, I get to spend time with them professionally in my day job at Penguin Books, um, but then also get to kind of think about them in my uh, in my other life, my, my writing life, um, just feels really lucky. And, um, and on top of that, I get to work with book people. And that's, you know, that's where I met 
you back in the day and some of our other good friends. And I feel like it's all of it has kind of culminated in creating this kind of rich environment um, where you realize that writing books um, isn't impossible and um, and it kind of encourages you to try. I don't I, I kind of feel like our grounding when we worked together back in the day at Writer's Digest was um, really allowed us to start to think about ourselves as writers. At least that helped kind of play a big role for me in that. And did you feel the same? Yeah, absolutely. And I think even just, I, I think you have a, when I think about, I remember the first time you gave me something to edit, I asked you what, uh, what to look for. And you said, just look for anything that slows you down. And that was like one sentence of advice, but it was the best advice. <laughs> I feel like I like built my whole editorial philosophy around that and actually found myself uh, repeating it to other people later. And I think, you know, editing and writing seem like they go hand in hand, but I think, you know, being able to do both, it, they're not, they're not necessarily the same thing. And you're just someone who's able to, you know, break things down and identify nuts and bolts the way that an editor needs to, but you're also just kind of this wonderful creative soul. Thank you. I, it's so funny. I was actually, before we started this, I was just editing a manuscript. And I think the last comment I put in the margins was, this is slowing me down a little bit. So it's <laughs> that piece of advice. And But I think at least when it comes to editing and my own writing, I really try to get in the head of readers. And, um, and I think that comes from a, a theory that I studied in graduate school called reader response theory, which is that we all respond to writing as readers. And so I think half the time with my writing um, and my editing, I'm just trying to kind of enter it with fresh eyes and letting myself get carried away by the voice. And if I'm not getting carried away by the voice, it means there's a sign that there's something not quite working, that they've lost me along the way. Um, I think it's harder to figure out with your own writing because you're so involved in it, but that's where I think reading things out loud can help, uh, re switching from screen to paper, that kind of thing. But yeah, that is my mantra. Look for things that slow you down. So I love that you're still thinking about that. <laughs> I still remember <laughs> you telling me that. Um, what was it like? I'm not sure I've ever even had the opportunity to really ask you this, but when you transitioned from working for this niche small publisher, um, for anyone who's not familiar, Writer's Digest Books um, is a nonfiction imprint that publishes instructional guides and inspirational guides for people who want to be writers. So it's a very niche um, how-to sort of market. And then you move to the city and you're kind of in the big leagues of editing in New York. Was that an easy transition? Was it really different when you started working for Penguin or was it sort of like the same thing on a different scale? I feel like some of it was the same. I think like I got really great editing basics um, from our time at Writer's Digest, working with people like you and our old boss, Jack Heffron, and, um, and other colleagues who really, I think, just have a super solid foundation in working with writing. So I feel like I had that that at under my fingertips or under my belt. You know, I knew how to, um, how to start to dive into a manuscript and trust that my instincts for it were leading me in a good direction. Um, I think what was the big change for me was just kind of the mechanics and the dynamics of the New York City publishing culture, where everything is so much more about relationships and um, about conversations and taking people out for agent lunches and thinking about 
comp titles and um, those are the titles you use to kind of demonstrate the need in the market. And so I think that the relationships, um, the kind of the politics and the dynamics came so much more into play in New York. Um, and then I also think when we were working at Writer's Digest, the, the joy of working at a niche publisher is you're able to determine the topics you want to publish um, mm -hmm. pretty easily. Um, whereas here, um, and you kind of have the market cornered. Here, we're, all, we're often competing for projects. And so there may be something that I love, but five other editors are going after it. Um, and I don't come up with ideas from scratch as much here. I do sometimes, um, just not as much as I would like. So I feel like my time in Cincinnati gave me really good grounding, but I still had to kind of earn my New York stripes, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, kind of kind of get the rhythms and uh, the rhythms and mechanics of New York City publishing, which is just a little bit different, not better, not worse, just different. Mm -hmm. Can you give us the gist of what sorts of books you focus on on your list right now, editorially? Sure. Yeah, sure. I work at Penguin Books um, at Penguin Random House, and it's pretty cool because it means the little penguin goes on the spine of the books that I publish. And um, <laughs> I do entirely nonfiction. Um, and I look for, I kind of, I'd say my list kind of splits into three different areas. Um, one is kind of, the kind of illustrated interactive creativity books. Um, so a big cornerstone of my list is Carrie Smith, um, the author who wrote Wreck This Journal. I've been working with Carrie for about 12 years um, on all of her books since Wreck This Journal. And it's just been a joy. Like it, she just inspires me every single day. Um, so, yeah, she's, it's just Wreck This Journal is a fantastic book too if you have writer's block. Um, you have to destroy it. The, the prompts ask you uh, to destroy each page or to kind of interact with it in non-traditional ways. And it's a really good way to break out of the fear of a blank space, I think. Um, and then I also publish uh, one of the, I, I would say the coloring book queen, Johanna Basford on my list here. And she's another big cornerstone on my list and such a fantastic professional and artist and just really really intuitive about what people, how people want to physically interact with the book. So I love that because it's those, both of those books kind of push you outside of the traditional reader roles. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would say another strand of my list is I like kind of the quirky, weird books. Um, so for instance, I published a book this fall called Plight of the Living Dead by this fantastic wired writer named Matt Simon. And it's all about zombification and nature um, and how different <laughs> funguses and animals kind of actually exert mind control as a way to uh, physically evolve and, and to kind of stay on top of things evolution-wise. It's creepy and it prompted a huge existential crisis, but I love it. And, um, and then I think the third strand of my list is kind of I'm very interested in um, women's voices and kind of narrative-driven material. I uh, published last, um, about a year and a half ago, I published a book of poetry from a woman named Yarsa Daly Ward, um, which is so fantastic. It's called Bone, and she had self-published it, and then we took it on and added more material and then did her lyrical um, poetry-driven memoir last uh, last summer called the terrible which was amazing um so those are kind of the three the three areas the one that i'm super excited about i'm publishing this summer and that is a memoir from elaine walteroth who was uh the former editor of team vogue um editor-in-chief of team vogue kind of during all of the election oh wow yeah she's just amazing like really about representation and young women's voices and confidence and 
that's a memoir called, called More Than Enough, um, and that comes out in June, and it's kind of my baby. <laughs> I think Elaine is a powerhouse, and she inspires me every day, and there's been so much heart and hard work going into the book that um, I'm really honored to be part of bringing it out into the world, so I love my job. Like, I could not be luckier, and uh, yeah, and I get to do books that I'm really interested in, so it's a joy. That was a super long answer, but I hope that No, helps. that's okay. I think it's really heartening for a writer to hear editors talking about books with such enthusiasm, because, I mean, we all know, you know this as a writer, too, we all know that our editors are passionate about our books that's why they acquired them you know but knowing that is one thing then you kind of get into the back and forth where you're just emailing about all these little (laughs) mundane things and it's really nice it's like refreshing to hear an editor talk about the books they're working on with so much enthusiasm you know I feel really lucky like I mean like I get to help somebody bring something they care about into the world you know and I used to back in the day, and it's kind of a corny, um, a corny metaphor. Um, I used to say it was like giving birth, um, but I don't think it's like that. I think I'm actually more of a midwife um, because it's <laughs> ultimately my authors, it's, it's their book, um, but I want to help them get it out in the world into the strongest, smartest way possible um, in a way that will sell copies and is true to their vision, but also brings to the table everything Penguin can offer in terms of marketing and publicity. Um, and so, yeah, just giving it the best shot as possible in the sometimes tough marketplace. So, um, yeah. And then I just love the stuff I work on. So I'm, I'm very, I just feel very greedy and lucky with my job. At what point did you first think, I would like to write one of these books I've been editing? And how did that whole expansion of your career come about at first when you started writing um, nonfiction? We'll talk about um, the fiction in a The nonfiction started because moving to New York, um, I kind of, I took an editorial assistant position, which was a little bit tricky um, financially. And I was a little bit older and, um, and it was just kind of hard to figure out like, oh man, how am I going to support myself? And I remember complaining about it to my dad, um, who has never been a huge fan of New York City. And he just said, well, maybe you should write and, and try to make a little money. And it had just never occurred to me. Um, and so at that point in time, I started with my old college roommate, um, Amy Helms, and she and I love to riff on dating and the dating world. And so we came up with an idea to do a book called Boys of the Feather, um, which was just kind of a fun, silly, chiclet book at the time, um, comparing men to different types of birds. Um, looking back, it's probably a little bit reductive, but it was super fun to write. And uh, <laughs> and it was just kind of, I, I realized then that I had this skill set that while I could apply it to my job, I could also um, use it on the side to to kind of take care of myself in a city that has a high cost of living and in an industry that, you know, is not, it can be challenging with salaries sometimes, especially when you're starting um, out in publishing. And so it was kind of like this liberating idea. I didn't know why I had never thought of it before. So I totally give my dad credit for that. Um, And I think after that, um, I, you know, I did some journals um, with a former colleague, Rachel Kempster, and that kind of came about from some conversations she and I had had and, so it's kind of a nice way to have something creative that is also bringing you in a little bit of money on the side and kind of easing um, easing the cost of living in New York City. And it's so much in your wheelhouse. Um, what have you learned um, both in crafting these books and, and editing them and acquiring them 
what have you learned about what makes a good saleable nonfiction book? What is it that grabs you uh, when you're acquiring for your list? Uh, when something comes across your desk or when you have an idea yourself, what is it that grabs you and makes you think um, that something has legs? And for me, I mean, I think it can be a number of things, you know, it can be like watching what's working in the marketplace or looking for a spot on my list that, that needs, needs to be filled. But I also think like, I just, I like to look for something that just speaks to me um, in a very, in a way that just makes me kind of giddy and excited. Um, Cause I think, you know, sometimes I'll have agents say, what are you looking for? Like, you know, can someone so write a book for you, you know, tell me what you want them to write. And I always appreciate that offer, but it's hard to answer because I think the best ideas come from a very deep heart space in the author's life and something they're personally interested in and want to spend time exploring. And I think you can really, that really comes through um, in projects and in talking with authors, that kind of sense of purpose and drive and joy and experiencing and exploring what they want to write about. Um, and I think you can kind of tell sometimes when it's not a perfect match or someone's doing it to just kind of to kind of connect the dots um, or just kind of be formulaic about it. So I, mm -hmm. I and it's kind of a hard thing just to describe, but I, I look for something that just you can kind of just see the joy in it. Um, I worry this may be a disheartening question for writers looking to break in with nonfiction, but I think you're the right person to ask because you're not a disheartening person. So <laughs> platform, um, yeah. when it comes to nonfiction, I, I, you know, I've been doing, it's something I got all the time when I was editing writer's digest magazine. And now that I'm writer in residence here, um, part of my, a uh, job with this position is I have monthly office hours at a local branch where writers can come in and see me and bring in their their questions and their problems. And I had my first office hours of the year uh, this week, and I had multiple people there with nonfiction projects asking, you know, I am an unknown writer. What are my odds? So can you talk about how important platform is with different kinds of nonfiction and if there's any hope for those who don't yet have much of one in place? Yeah. So I think um, a couple of different ways to look at it. I think there are certain categories and topics where platform is, is essential. Um, you know, I think that, you know, publishing is a very um, audience-driven business. And when I say that, I mean, as an editor, I am looking at what else is out there. Um, what will this book bring to the table that other books aren't bringing to the table? And how how will this author be able to partner with us and helping us helping us sell this book? And so I think if, for instance, if you're a parenting blogger or you're um, a diet guru and you already have a huge mailing list, um, that is helping us do part of the work. That's not right. to say we're not going to do the work. Um, you know, I think that we have access to publicity and marketing outlets that a lot of writers don't. But anytime you kind of have that mechanism in place, um, it just helps build the case. Um, it's just a hard market out there. Bookstores are hard. You can you walk into them and it's crowded. And so um, I think a platform makes it more appealing for authors. Um, and I think that as an editor, it's an easier sell for us in-house. Um, that being said, I do feel that there are certain types of books that occasionally may not have um, quite the same thing as like a big national platform. 
or um, maybe driven um, more by the author's expertise in that particular area. Um, so for instance, like I think about some of the giftier books I do, and that in a lot of ways can be as much about package and um, vision as it is about the author's ability to have like a huge Instagram following or something. Um, right. That being said, an Instagram following can be very important with an illustrated book. So I'm trying to offer some hope, but I think that, um, I think at the end of the day, it just makes your project more saleable. I think that a lot of people, um, it's hard work to build a platform. It's so hard um, with nonfiction, but I think that, um, it's just a really good thing to have. And I think if you don't, um, you should in a way think about that as much of a part of your work as the writing is. Yeah. Um, because it will, it, it, it's not separate anymore. Like it, it, you can't just have a really strong idea with no platform, nine out of 10 times. That being said, there are always exceptions. Um, but I think just to kind of approach it as this is as much a part of the writing as the actual writing is can sometimes help it feel a little less challenging. It's it's just another aspect of your personality and your writing persona that you're helping grow, I guess. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. I mean it's important for everybody. It's important for fiction writers too. None of us can escape it. But I think, yeah, nonfiction, if you're trying to be an authority on a topic, it helps if you're already a little bit of one. <laughs> yeah. And it and it helps publishers if we know that there are people waiting for your book, you know, yeah. like it just, you know, that you have people who know you as an authority in this area and they're going to respond to you as an authority in this area and they're going to help support it. Um, which is at the end of the day too, what authors want. Um, you know, we all want to sell the book and, um, I, sometimes I have to stop and remind myself of that or remind my authors, like we have the same goal. We want to sell your book. Um, right. this is just helps us all get to that a little bit more easily. So creatively, another thing you and I both have in common is that we both started in nonfiction and as writers uh, made a switch to fiction writing at some point. Um, me, when I first started dabbling in fiction, I was doing it in the closet, <laughs> literally almost um, by night, not really showing anything to anyone for a long time. I'm curious, how did it happen for you? What made you first kind of start trying your hand at it and how did you end up with your first novel contract? Um, so I, um, I love to read fiction. I edit nonfiction and I read nonfiction professionally, but um, in my free time, I am such a fiction reader. Um, but I've always kind of been um, under the idea that I don't know how to write plot. Um, and so that, that always kind of deterred me. I was like, Oh, I can write some lines, but I don't have a sense of plot and arc and story. Um, and so I was having lunch um, with um, my agent, um, Michael, who had represented me for um, one of the nonfiction journals at that point. And I was telling him a terrible story about dating in New York City. And he was <laughs> laughing. And he said to me, have you ever thought about trying young adult? I think you'd have a good voice for it. And um and I hadn't thought about that. And Michael represents a lot of fantastic young adult clients. And so it kind of got me thinking. And around the same time, I lost out on a project at work that I had kind of been cultivating and that I really wanted. And um, I lost it to another publisher. And I was just devastated. Like, I just kind of felt like this gut-wrenching loss. Um, 
and it kind of struck me that, that these two things happened at the same time um, because I think that I needed something of mine to cultivate um, and something that I could put those hopes and dreams and the, the kind of more earnest parts of myself into that was mine versus an author's project. Um, that's not to say that I don't put love into my author's projects, but that I think I was responding to losing that project more as if as it were mine um, yeah. rather than as a business proposition. So um, it was August in New York and August in New York is terrible and hot and smelly. And so my friends and I were all around. So we decided to do our own um, National Novel Writing Month um, in August. And I think there were 13 of us. And um, we just started meeting um, and kind of um, meeting to do writing, um, writing word counts with each other. And um, through that, um, I got a really rough draft of a YA manuscript in place. And it was hard, um, but it kind of, that forced me to get over my qualms about plot and about not being able to finish something. Um, what I finished, what I had at the end of it was a mess. So then I then had to workshop it um, and revise for about a year. And at that point, my agent took a look at it and loved it. And we went out with it and we did not find out for it. <laughs> so, um, but at that point I had already started thinking about something else and, um, I had gone through a bad breakup at the time. So it was kind of heartbreak was on my mind. And, um, and I started working on a book about a young woman who goes through a breakup and creates a museum to share reminders of all the things that she's lost and all the things she wants to get back again. And um, that eventually became the Museum of Heartbreak, um, which was my first book. And um, Michael had gone out to an editor who had expressed interest in my writing. And um, every, again, everyone else passed on that, but she asked for a revision. And so I had a long call with her and got a lot of feedback and spent the next four months doing a pretty massive overhaul. And, um, and she bought it. So um, that is how the first one came. So I feel lucky in that I had some ins. Um, you know, I had my agent in place and I had great guidance, um, but it still was, you know, I have the rejections and um, I, I, it took some time to kind of get that finished book in my hands. I think a lot of people think if you already have some ins, then, you know, publishing the book is just easy. <laughs> yeah, they do. And, it, you know, and I'm not going to be disingenuous. It's easier. It's easier. Um, it helps to know somebody, certainly. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I was working at Writer's Digest, but by the time I sold my first novel, it was uh, the second one that I had shopped as with you. And I was on my second agent at that point also. Yeah, so. yeah it's not hard. So your new your new novel, Letting Go of Gravity, um, I have heard you say that this is the book of your heart. Can you kind of elaborate on why you feel that way? Sure. Um, I my first book was fun because I set it in New York City and it's it's kind of a fun it's almost a little bit of a New York fairy tale about falling in love. Um, but for my second book, I wanted to kind of really delve into what it means to be an anxious perfectionist. Um, and that's kind of how I had grown up. And um, while the novel is not autobiographical, it pulls a lot of elements um, from kind of who I was and who I've become. And, um, and I got to set it in Cincinnati, which was really important to me because I feel like um, growing up in Cincinnati, you know, I was there until I was 28, and, um, went, and that's when I moved to New York. But I feel like it was a very known quantity for me. There's so much comfort in that. Um, 
but at the same time, it also can allow you to kind of become stuck and not to explore possibility or change. And so to me, it felt like a really good place to put my protagonist and kind of give her a summer where everything just gets disrupted. Um, which causes her a lot of anxiety. Um, and I also wanted to explore sibling relationships. I feel very lucky at this point in my life that my brother and I have a great uh, relationship, but that took a little bit of time and, and this kind of based on some of the stuff we had went through as children. And so I just feel really um, both, I knew Cincinnati, I knew anxious perfectionists, and I knew siblings. Um, that <laughs> I wanted to kind of start with. And so, and I feel like I worked hard on that book. I went through seven huge revisions with my editorial team at Simon Pulse, and uh, and I and I cried during it, and it was angsty, and I didn't want to do it anymore. But I'm <laughs> really proud of it. At the end of the day, I, I feel like they helped me get it to a place that I'm really excited about. And um, yeah, it just there's just a lot of heart and work in that book. It's this. Re- it's a really moving story. Um, it's a moving story of, I guess, to back up and explain it a little bit. These twins who are graduating from high school, and actually, one is graduating and one isn't because uh, he had leukemia and had to take a year off. Um, he's better now, but they are. They have more distance between them than they ever have before, and. One has set herself up to go off and do great things, but she isn't really sure she wants to do those things. Um, And I think it's a really interesting way to explore the sibling connection of, you know, these people who have started so much alike and then ended up um, at such different places at a really important crossroads that um, all people go through when they're coming of age. But that was an even bigger crossroads for for these two. Yeah, it was fun. I, you know, I felt very comfortable writing um, my main character, first person, um, Parker, uh, the the sister, because um, I think she's very close to me. And I had a hard time with her brother, Charlie, um, and that was a lot of what our revision was, um, because I just didn't know him as well. And I think, in a way, it kind of pushed me to kind of open up to be more empathetic um, to the people who aren't anxious perfectionists. Um, <laughs> and it kind of pushed me out of my comfort zone a bit, um, but in a way that I feel really good about. So, um, yeah, I just, um, I was just, I felt really lucky to write that book. It was, I'm, I'm, I'm in love with it, so... There are a lot of Cincinnati landmarks in that book. I mean, it doesn't just happen to take place in Cincinnati. You mentioned a lot of um, specific places. How did you choose um, which places you wanted to feature? And can you kind of let the listeners know uh, what some of the places are that they'll see? Of course, yes. And so, well, Skyline Chili had to be in there. I mean, that's just, um, that is maybe the thing other than my family that I miss the most when I live in New York City. (laughs) And so I wanted that in there, but then I also wanted to think about some of the kind of marvelous surprises Cincinnati has that is not, um, that aren't always evident. You know, like I love the North Side Day, the North Side Fourth of July Day Parade um, and the Lawn Chair Brigade. And it was important to me that I got that in there. And um, street art plays a really big part in the book. And um, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of street art. And I discovered that when I was in New York. Um, but when I was home in Cincinnati at one point, I saw there was, a, there was a, at the time a beautiful mural by um, two Brazilian twins, it was Gemios, um, who has it, they have it in Northside. And I was like, oh, holy cow, like this has been in the neighborhood I grew up in. And I just probably wasn't there when I moved, but still that there was this kind of vibrant uh, subculture, counterculture in Cincinnati that I hadn't really been aware of when I lived there. Um, I was just starting to get to know. Um, so that was fun to put in there. Um 
And then I, um, I put zips in because I, I love the burgers at zips. And uh, my grandmother grew and grandfather grew up eating there. And I still go there when I'm back. So it was just kind of a chance to revisit some of my favorite things about Cincinnati. And, um, and then just kind of, I, I like putting in Easter eggs for my friends and family. So um, <laughs> I also put that in there. And then I also have Kings Island. I have uh, my characters riding the beast, which is my favorite roller coaster. Awesome. What, what, I think I caught some of those Easter eggs, by the way. Probably did. Delightful. Um, what is the best response? I know, you know, we we all have that novel that's kind of a book of our heart and then a, a reader who will respond to it in a way that just kind of makes all those revisions you mentioned going through totally worth it. Is there a favorite interaction that you've had with a reader about this yeah. book? Um, I, I would say just kind of, I've gotten a couple of notes um, from people through Facebook or Twitter or my website, um, and it's uh, young women, you know, in, in their teens who um, also struggle with anxiety and perfectionism and um, are just really responding to kind of seeing that explored in the book. And that means like more than even pretty much anything um it's it's just the fact that i could be in a spot to help uh the person i used to be um it's just um it just it's awesome and um a couple of them have told me it's their favorite book and i'm like holy cow i read a book that's someone's favorite book i mean like (laughs) other than my niece who loves everything i write like i didn't think that was a very big population of people but now it's not one it's like maybe (laughs) super exciting and um, I have this uh, piece of art that I got when I was in Nashville, um, and it says, be who you needed when you were younger, and um, I love it, And I, but I bought it because I like the idea of writing who you needed when you were younger, and um, I feel like wow. I needed Parker when I was younger, and um, and I was able to kind of walk her through some decisions that I wish I had made at that age, and so um, to, to think that other young women are finding and responding to that it's just kind of like, it's, it's kind of like a bucket list item. Like, I don't know that things get much better than that. I love that. I want to sign like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I have to tell you, you should, it's from this fantastic store in Nashville called Old Made Good. And the owner finds vintage art, um, like old watercolors and stuff, and puts crazy sayings over them. Um, some inspirational, some humorous, and um Oh my gosh, it, it, I just needed it. I had to, I had to have it. Um, and I feel like now I want to set a book in that store because it was so great. <laughs> great. Well, I'll look forward to that one. Thank you so much for being here, Meg. This has been so much fun, and I'm sure super helpful to our listeners too. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for having me, and um, just encouraging all those Cincinnati people out there to keep writing. Um, we need more Ohio voices. So, thank you, Jessica. Yes. Um, and we'll look forward to your next book whenever that may be. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Meg. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer in Residence program. You can meet Jessica at various events throughout the year. Learn more by visiting cincinnatilibrary.org slash writer in residence. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And leave us a review. It helps other book lovers find us. Thank you for listening.